Thank you, worship team, for leading us so well. And I want to say good morning to you and ask that you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And when you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. Uh, For the next two weeks, we're going to be focusing on prayer. Uh, Specifically, Jesus' model prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, known as the Lord's Prayer, what some call the Disciples' Prayer, and basically how Jesus wants his followers to pray. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have this privilege of of reading your word and contemplating what you have to say to us today. We pray, Lord, that it would not be uh, business as usual today, that it would not just be, oh, we're going to rattle off this prayer that we know so well and that most of us have learned since we were very young. We pray, Lord, that you would would open our eyes and open our hearts to, to what you have for us today in this passage of Scripture, and we pray, Lord, that we would not be the same when we leave this place. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me just say right off the bat that the Lord's Prayer, or the Disciples' Prayer, is a dangerous prayer. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you are practicing the dangerous art of praying. There should be a warning label with the Lord's Prayer. It should say, caution may cause life change. Caution may induce obedience. Caution may lead to a fixation on God Almighty. See, this prayer is not something to be prayed flippantly or mindlessly or just rattling it off, as many of us have, have uh, maybe learned to do over the years. This way of praying, as Jesus teaches it, will lead to change. Now, Jesus taught his disciples how to talk to God. Uh, this This is a model prayer he gives. It's a pattern. It's it's not something merely to be repeated, though it is very prayer worthy. It's very prayable because Jesus gave it, and it's in the form of a prayer. But it's not something just to to be repeated, and it is brief. It is to the point. It's concise. It's simple. And at the same time, it's comprehensive. Everything that needs to be covered in prayer is covered in this prayer. But first, let's do some review. Let's do some background on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I know some of you, you know, if if someone had said, hey, this year you're going to read the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over again, you'd say, no, I'm not. But many of you have taken that challenge, and you have read or listened to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 over and over again. Literally, it could be even hundreds of times this year since January. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount as in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And what we have seen so far, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you see the identity and character of Christians. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. The Beatitudes. And then, in, in chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, you see the influence as salt and light that Christians are in the world. Salt to arrest decay and to create thirst for the Gospel. Light to to expose sin and to show the way to God. What else would we see in the Sermon on the Mount so far? In in chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Jesus highlights the Word of God. He highlights the Word of God that it is perfect and permanent and inerrant and sufficient. He says that He has come to explain the true significance of what God has said. He emphasizes the full inspiration and full enduring authority of Scripture. And then what he does in verse 20 of chapter 5 is he calls his followers to a deeper, more radical holiness than that of the religious leaders of his day. 
It shows the impossibility of salvation by works. That only by the righteousness that he gives could people be made right with God. What does he do next? In, in, in chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, he addressed the heart attitude. He addressed the, the core beliefs of his followers that, that uh, formed the basis of their heart attitude and that affect their view of everything, from marriage to friendships to community and world issues. He addresses the Christians' outward deeds, what they do as a result of who they are in Christ. And then here in chapter 6, where we're at, in verses 1 through 18, Jesus gives three examples of how seeking the approval of others can block a life of consistent uh, devotion and consistent uh, communion with Jesus. It leads to a hypocritical life. Nobody wants to live a hypocritical life. And Jesus is basically saying, don't do it that way. Do it this way. Don't live that way. Live this way. Don't be like that. Be like this. And don't pray like that. Pray like this. So what he does, he talks about giving and praying and fasting. See, the problem back then was similar to what it is now. People did things for selfish reasons. We know what that's like. We got a lot of practice, don't we? And, and, and Jesus was, was addressing this. And, and for example, he's talking about when you're generous, when you're giving. He's talking about when you're talking to God, when you're praying. He's talking about when you do without food to focus on God. Because what was happening in those days is people were using giving and praying and fasting as ways to shine the spotlight on themselves. Rather than giving God the attention, rather than giving God the credit and God the glory. And what Jesus does, and he does it so well again and again and again, is he straightens things out. Jesus sets things straight. And so he doesn't condemn them. He straightens it out not by condemning them. Their own actions did that. But by showing them the right way to be, the right way to live. And he addresses, by the way, and by way of review, the, the issue of giving in chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. Basically, the teaching is this. Jesus wants us to use money to serve him, not ourselves. And so we are not to make a scene publicly when we give. And we are not to make a scene privately in our own hearts. We're not to make a scene publicly and we're not to dwell on privately what we've given. And then he addresses prayer. And he starts in verse 5 of chapter 6. He says, when you pray. He assumes that his followers are going to talk to him. Literally, they're going to ask him for things. They're going to make requests. They're going to make petitions. He says, when you pray. And he says, don't be like the hypocrites. Well, they do what they do to be seen, and they've got their reward already. No reward forthcoming from God for those who do things in a hypocritical way. But he addresses prayer, and, and the gist of it is that God knows our needs, and that we are to humbly and, and honestly talk with him, dependent upon what he provides, confident in what he can do. We are to communicate with God with a heavenly-minded perspective, undistracted by other people, undistracted by ourselves even, and we're to do this in such a way that we truly connect with God. And then comes verse 9, when Jesus says, pray then like this. Pray then in this way, in contrast with how both religious and irreligious people prayed in those days. Not like this, pray like this. See, prayer is a response to God. Prayer is addressed to God. Prayer is dependent upon God. Prayer is confident in God. Prayer is literally fixated on God. It's a preoccupation with God that leads us to, to speak to God, to, to address God, to request from Him things. It's one of the most holy and intimate and personal activities that a believer in Jesus uh, can engage in. And Jesus knows, He knows how prone we are uh, to do things for the wrong reasons. He knows how prone we are to fixate on anything and everything but him. So he gives us a model prayer, a, a pattern for praying that puts God first. Now, like I said before, it's not an exact prescription of how you have to pray. He's not saying every time you pray, you've got to pray these words. 
But it's a way of praying. It's a, a pattern for prayer. It's more like a description of what we're going to focus on as we pray. It's a way to talk to God. It's a way to acknowledge God. It's a way to ask. So the Lord's Prayer, or the Disciples' Prayer, it contains six requests. Six requests, six things that are being asked of God, six petitions. Now the first three we're going to look at today, in verses uh, 9 and 10 of Matthew 6. They are focused on God. They are fixated on God. That's our, our, the idea about it today. The next three, the, the second group of three, We'll look at next week in Matthew 6, 11 through 13. They relate to human needs that God meets. Human needs that God meets. Today, though, focused and fixated right on God. And, and he shows us what to focus on. But before we look at it, I want you to look at Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. By way of a cross-reference, it's pretty much the parallel passage uh, to, the, to the Lord's Prayer. And... Here's the setting. Jesus was praying, and he had finished praying, and one of his disciples came up and says, Lord, teach us to pray just like John taught his disciples to pray. And Jesus says, well, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us of our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. That's it. Uh, It's the short version of of the longer version seen in Matthew chapter 6. So if you don't have enough time, go go to Luke 11. Okay? Um, But basically, Jesus taught them this as as a result of a request. Lord, teach us. Show us how to pray because we don't know. Teach us how to pray. And so he, he gives them this, this pattern. And it's really the, the parallel passage to what we're seeing here in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 6. So the prayer begins in verse 9. Jesus has said, pray, pray then in this way. He said, Our Father who is in heaven. That's how the prayer begins. Now, God is the Father only of those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Now, some will say, well, wait a minute. Uh, God's the father of everyone. In one sense, yes. Only in this sense. In the sense that he has created everyone. So, for example, God is the father of unbelievers only in the sense that he is their creator. But they are not acknowledging him They are not following him. They are not serving him. So they cannot call him our father. There are a lot of people praying this prayer today that do not know God, that do not know him, have not been saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ. And this this prayer falls on, on deaf ears because God is not going to listen to the prayer of one who does not know him. By grace through faith in Christ. His fatherhood of unbelievers is only in the sense of being their creator. Spiritually, the father of unbelievers is Satan, the devil. So only those who recognize uh, who Jesus is and, and, and believe and know their relation to God by faith in Christ can accurately call him our father. Address God as our father. The Greek word for father here is pater, Uh, But by the way, it would have been Abba in the common language of Jesus that he would have spoken in Aramaic. It would be Abba. And Abba, as we know, and most of the time, here's what you hear. Abba means daddy. Okay? Uh, Abba was used, is a word that was used in Aramaic by children for their fathers, for their earthly parent. Uh, And it indicates closeness. It indicates uh, intimacy. But here's the thing. Almost every teaching I've ever heard on this says, Abba means daddy, almost like daddy-o, pops, you know. And, and what can happen is it borders on irreverence for God. Now, here's the thing, and here's where this idea of it being daddy breaks down. In, in Aramaic, there were not just children, young children calling their, their father Abba, but grown people, adults, would also call their parent Abba. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I call my dad, dad. I don't call him daddy anymore. It was a long time ago when I stopped calling my dad, daddy. Okay? Now, you might, and I, you can do that if you want. Um, don't call my dad, daddy. I mean, your dad, if you want to call him daddy, that's fine. Um, but here's the thing. Adult children also use this name for their fathers. Um, so the, the commonly idea, the common idea of, of Abba being daddy may not be so accurate. And, and it can lead to irreverence. But addressing God as Father, what it signifies is the authority of who God is and the intimacy of, of a loving Father's care for His children. And Christ's followers addressing God as Father shows the unique relationship they have with the unique Son. As Jesus said, uh, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So they show their unique relationship that they have with the the unique son, having come into a relationship with the father only through the son. And then we address him as our father in heaven. In heaven points to God's sovereign rule over all things. One writer put it this way, um, James Burtness said this. He said, you know, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Um, And so spoke the disciples to Jesus. And he says, in making this request, they confessed that they were not able to pray on their own. That they had to learn to pray. And that the phrase, learning to pray, sounds strange to us. If the heart does not overflow and begin to pray by itself, we say, it will never learn to pray. But it is a dangerous error. Surely very widespread amongst Christians to think that the heart can pray by itself. For then we confuse wishes, hopes, sighs, laments, rejoicings, all of which the heart can do by itself with prayer. And we confuse earth and heaven, man and God. Prayer does not mean simply to pour out one's heart. It means rather to find the way to God and to speak with him, whether the heart is full or empty. And then he says, no man can do that by himself. For that he needs Jesus Christ. So you need Jesus Christ in your life to be able to pray accurately our Father who is in heaven. Now the prayer gets more specific though. And we see three primary things that Jesus is having us uh, focus upon. According to Jesus, what ought we to focus on specifically as we pray? Well, the first thing is we're to focus on God's name. God's name. Look again with me at verse 9. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now I realize we know these words so well. Most of us have this prayer memorized. We, we, we could say this prayer without having our Bibles opened. But I want you to see the words. And I want you to, to, to think with me about what these words mean. And I know that most of us have prayed this prayer many, many times. And also, many times, not even thinking about it. Just rattling it off as if somehow saying those words does something. Well, the first thing is, what is hallowed be your name mean? What does it mean? The Greek word for hallowed is hagiazo. It means to make holy. It means to sanctify. It means to consecrate, to set apart. We are to ask God that his name be treated as holy because it is. His name is sacred. So we're praying, Lord, let your name be treated as holy. Holy. Psalm 115 and verse 1 says, Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. We sing it in a praise song. Psalm 99 and verse 3, Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Psalm 61 and verse 8. I will ever sing praises to your name. Psalm 66, 1 and 2. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. And Psalm 100, verse 4. Give thanks to him and bless his name. We usually think of God blessing us. But we're instructed to bless the name of God, to speak well of the name of God. Bless his name. And God is known by his proper name in scripture. Uh, Elohim, God, the creator of the universe. 
Adonai, Lord, and, and the, the unpronounceable. That God, when he, when he was asked, well, who shall we say sent us? And he says, you tell them that I am sent you. That I exist sent you. God is also known by other names in Scripture. There are, you could make a, a huge list of names that God is, is known by that are descriptive names that, that show different um, facets of his character and his nature. Just a sampling. El Elyon, uh, the maker or literally the possessor of heaven and earth. Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. The Lord will provide. Takes you back to, to Genesis chapter 22. And Abraham about to sacrifice his son Isaac. And his son says to him, Lord, uh, Dad, Father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Everything else is here, but there's one key ingredient missing. And he says, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb. And you know what happens. The God provides and they see a lamb in a thicket caught by its horns. And, and the name of that place was called Jehovah-Jireh, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. God will provide. He's also known as Jehovah Shalom. That God is our peace. God who is our peace. But God's greatest name is Jesus Christ. God's greatest name is Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself most fully in Christ. As Hebrews 1 tells us that he has spoken uh, in his son in these last days. God has revealed him that Jesus, uh, who is the exact representation of God's nature, as Colossians 1 tells us. God is, is uh, his greatest name is Jesus Christ. But is that what hallowed be your name means? Does it mean that God's name would be respected and, and, and uh, appropriately used? Or, or is it something else? It, I believe it means something else. There's, there's something more to this. Hallowed be your name signifies much more than respecting God's name, what he is called or his titles, though that is very important and necessary. There's more. That God's name represents who he is. That your name, in the biblical sense, is closely related, inextricably related with who you are. It's not just a title. It's a person. So, God, so God's name represents who he is, his person, his nature, his character, his attributes. Everything about God. When we say, hallowed be your name. When we pray this, we're saying, Lord, may you in all your glory, may you in everything you are be treated as holy, be treated as holy by people. So we want God, as he has revealed himself, to be acknowledged and to be respected by people. And, and here's an, an interesting thing. We ask God for this to take place. Literally in the Greek, let the name of you be blessed. Let the name of you be holy. We ask God because he is the only one who can work in the hearts of people that they would change their minds about him. That they would turn from unbelief to faith that they would turn from lies to the truth, that they would turn from animosity to friendship with God, that only God can bring this about, only God can do a, a work of grace in someone's heart so that they would want to serve him rather than curse him, so that they would want to love him rather than hate him. And, and it only happens when someone comes to know God in Jesus Christ, when someone comes to faith in Christ. If you don't know Jesus, you need him even to be able to pray to God. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus is saying, here's how you should start your prayer. Our Father who is in heaven. Our Father in heaven. So first we're, we're focused and fixated on God's name, who he is, his person. And next, according to Jesus, according to him, we're to focus on God's kingdom. God's kingdom. Look with me at verse 10. You've already prayed in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. This is probably the most confusing aspect, one of the most confusing aspects of the New Testament for people. What does it mean, God's kingdom? Is it now? Is it future? Is it now? Is it not yet? 
what's the deal with the kingdom? The Greek word for kingdom is basileia. It, it signifies sovereignty. It signifies royal reign, royal power, um, God ruling. Now, the nature of God's kingdom is, is, is again, very confusing to people. And, and we know this, though. We know that the king is completely connected to his kingdom, to his rulership, to his sovereignty. But is this kingdom right now or in the future? The disciples wrestled with this question. Acts chapter 1. Jesus had, had died on the cross. He had been buried. He had risen from the dead. He's about to go and ascend to the Father. And the disciples ask him a question. This better be a good one. I mean, we're talking, you're not going to see me again till I come in glory. Well, Jesus, we've got one, one question for you. So it better, you better make it a good one. This has got to be a biggie. So what do they ask? Look at verse 6, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. When they had come together... Now remember, Jesus had said, wait in Jerusalem until, until what? Don't leave, but wait for what the Father had promised. What did the Father promise? He says, you, you have heard this from me, that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So they, they had come together, and so they asked Jesus a question. And it is a big question. Here's what they ask. Lord is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And I love Jesus' answer. He's basically saying, that's not for you to know. Here's what you should be focused on. He says, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But, and here's what you should be focusing on, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So they say, Jesus, tell us, are you, are you giving the kingdom back t- to Israel now? Is that what's going on? They were wondering. And what Jesus does is he refocuses them to the task at hand. He basically says it's like this. It's like, leave the kingdom specifics to me and focus on bringing people into my kingdom. Now, I want to address, uh, what, what, what about the kingdom, though? Is it now or later? It's a big question. So as to whether the kingdom is now or later, the biblical answer seems to be yes. Yes, it is. It's both. That when we speak of his kingdoms, there are two aspects to his kingdom. There is his universal rule. There is universal sovereignty over all. But there is also his mediatorial reign. That's a big word there, but mediatorial reign, his reign through Christ. His specific, there's a general universal ruling of God. There is a a specific uh, ruling through Christ the one mediator between God and man. So specifically, you're talking about a kingdom that exists because God rules. So his overarching kingdom. But then you've got another aspect of it, which is right now, Christ is ruling in the hearts of those who he has saved. He is not ruling in the hearts of those who refuse him. And then you've got another aspect of that same kingdom that basically goes to the future when Jesus returns and sets up his earthly kingdom. So which one is it? By the way, I don't believe that when when we pray thy kingdom come, we mean three things. I think God wants us to mean one thing. But what, what one thing? Well, I think it's the one thing that encompasses it all. That specifically this prayer, I believe this prayer is asking for the fullest manifestation of God's kingdom. The fullest manifestation of God's kingdom. And that would be Christ's return to establish his sovereignty on earth. So in essence, it covers all that God's kingdom signifies. That we are praying um, for now God's rule, his program to be fulfilled. And that for Christ's reign in the hearts of those he has saved... 
and for the future, Christ's return and reign as the King of kings and Lord of lords. That we desire the reality of God's rule in the lives of people made in his image. It ties into what Jesus was saying to his disciples when he said, it's not for you to know all these things. You need to know that you're my witnesses to the the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, here's one way that Dallas Willard put it. He said this, he says, we're praying for God's kingdom to take over at all points in his personal, social, and in the personal, social, and political order where it is now excluded. That God, we want God's kingdom to take over at all points in the personal, social, and political order in which it is now excluded. That the reign, of, the, that the reign or range of God's effective will would spread to more and more people. That we want God to rule in his church. That we want, God, we want others to, know, to come to know God through Christ and accept his rule in their lives. But we are ultimately awaiting for Christ's return where he will rule forever. And and what that does, that that kind of praying leads us to the next logical focus of our praying. You know, here's the deal. God is God. He is sovereign, though not acknowledged in the hearts of many. And so our praying, according to Jesus, needs to be focused next on his will. On his will. Look with me again at verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The Greek word for will is philema. It means wish, it means desire, it means intent. So what it means is whatever God wants, whatever God desires, whatever God intends, whatever God purposes, that's what we want. We are saying that we want what pleases him. We want what pleases God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, how is his will? How is God's will done in heaven? It is done immediately and joyfully and without reservation. In heaven, God's will is done joyfully. It is done immediately. It is done without reservation. So when we desire what what brings God the most pleasure, that we obey without reserve. That we're praying, thy will be done. There's something assumed here. It can't be, thy will be done as long as I like it. It can't be, thy will be done as long as it's comfortable for me. It can't be, thy will be done as long as it goes along with what I want to be happening. We're saying, God, you are the king. You are sovereign. And whatever you want goes. And I will cooperate. That's what we're praying. If you're not there, it's better not to pray it, right? The question comes then is, do we really want God's will when we pray, thy will be done? Do we really want what he wants? Or do we really want what God to do what we want? It's a challenge for us all. See, in verse 10 it says, uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now I want you to think about these words with me. In, if you look at different Bible translations, whether it's New American Standard, which I have here, or the ESV or the NIV, It'll, say, it'll be like this. It'll say, Our Father who art in heaven, period. Hallowed be thy name, period. Thy kingdom come, period, or comma. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, period. And most of the time, it's clumped together with the, the on earth as it is in heaven is applied only to thy will be done. And in one translation, it, it applies to both thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Which, which makes sense. The king... His will, it goes together if he's sovereign, and what he wants goes, and all that. But here's the idea. If you look in the Greek New Testament, it points to the fact that on earth as it is in heaven applies to all three. Literally, it reads like this. Let let the name of you be hallowed. Let Let the kingdom of you come into being. And let the will of you be done, and then on earth as it is in heaven. That in heaven, in heaven, God's name is unquestioned. God's person is, is fully identified with. That in heaven, God's rulership is fully cooperated with and acknowledged. And in heaven, God's will is done joyfully, immediately, and without reservation. So we are, we are praying that we want 
to see on earth what we don't see fully right now. Now, we are not praying for God to change, by the way. We are praying for God to change people, praying for God to change people's hearts, ours, the churches, and people who have yet to come to faith in Christ. We are praying for life change. We are praying for God to transform people. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, praying this first part of the Lord's Prayer, it reminds me so much of life in the Shara household. The cool thing is, it reminds me of my household so much, this prayer is so easy for me to pray. I mean, here's how it goes in my household. And and my kids will often come to me and they they will say, Dad, Father, you are awesome. They would say, Dad, you are the best. It happens all the time. They say, Dad, you are awesome. You're the best. We love you so much. We can barely contain ourselves. We love you so much. Well, that's not all that happens, though, at my house. Well, here's what happens next. Then they say, well, Dad, and they say it, by the way, in the most loving and respectful way imaginable. And they say, Dad, Father, you're the best. We love you so much. And because you're so great, you are in charge here in this house. This is what happens. They, they basically say, whatever you say goes. And then they say this, which is the, the corker. They say, and because this is true, we want whatever you want. We want whatever will bring you the most happiness. That happens in your family too, right? That happens at your house too? Seriously, we, we are, here's what we're to do. We are to ask God. He, he wants us to ask. Asking's not bad. He wants us to ask using the most loving and respectful name we know for him that he would be known as holy. That, that he would be obeyed and trusted as king. We ask that what is already true of him would be known in the earth, would be known on earth by people. But as J.I. Packer says, the chaos of earth mocks the request. The chaos of earth mocks the petition. The chaos of earth mocks us asking for these things because it is so contrary. But you know what it does? And Packer put it this way. He says, God does this. God reminds us. God reminds us that, that he has already established his will and his kingdom and his, his personhood fully and perfectly in heaven. And so that stirs us to hope that on earth we may yet see great things. Genesis eighteen fourteen Is anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So, so we pray. And, and we pray Lord, you are awesome. You rule whatever you say. Lord, you're awesome. You rule whatever you want. Now, why do we need to pray like this? What's the benefit of praying like this? Why would a person going through excruciating pain pray like this? Why would a person who has been betrayed or cheated or, or abandoned, pray like this. Why would a person who is going through great times in life pray like this? Let me give you a couple reasons. The first is this, that it counteracts. Praying like this counteracts our fixation on worldly things. Be they good or be they bad. Be they positive or be they negative. It counteracts our fixation with worldly things. See, when I respect God and who he is, I speak appropriately of him. I, I speak truth. I, I pray and say, Lord, may your wonderful identity be acknowledged and considered and viewed and recognized as, as set apart, utterly different, other, and holy and great and awesome. When I desire for his rule to be realized in my life and others' lives, 
I seek his being acknowledged as preeminent over everything. So I'm praying, Lord, may your rule and your sovereignty and, and your preeminence be cooperated with by me and my household and your church and people who will come to faith in Christ. See, when I ask for God's will, I am stating my intentions to obey. You can't ask for the will and not intend to obey. So we ask, Lord, may your pleasure and your desires, may they be our chief concern. May whatever you want be done immediately by us, unwaveringly, unreservedly. But see, when God looks big like this, when we are fixated on him to this point, then, then, then the other things in life looks, get smaller. It, it's, a, it's a perspective thing. He is overall, but when we fixate on things that aren't him, they look bigger than him at times. But magnifying God minimizes those other things. Well, what else it does? It reassures our wavering faith. Our faith wavers. We have doubts. There is a place for doubt. God doesn't condemn doubt. God can handle your doubts. Doubt away. He remains the same. He will prove himself faithful. It's all right to admit our doubts. You know, there are three truths that are being declared in this prayer. Three primary truths, and it's this, that God is our Father, our Father in heaven. So we're, we're declaring that he is our Father, and that, and that God is, is in heaven, and that his, his person and his kingdom and his will are agreed on in heaven. And so if God knows everything, and he does, and, and he knows everything we're going to pray, and he does, why should we pray this? Why should we tell him things he already knows? Well, it's not to remind him, it's to remind us, right? That we need to be reminded of truth we know. In fact, go with me to 2 Peter in chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. A friend of mine just shared this with us the other day. And, and I love it because what it does is it shows that this is the pattern for us in life. When we get reminded of things, it's not because we're dumb or because we don't understand or we just don't get it. It's because it's good to be reminded. It is good to remember. We're coming to this table this morning to remember Jesus' broken body and shed blood on our behalf on the cross. And Jesus gave us this, and he said, do this in remembrance of me, right? Remember. Well, listen to what Peter says. And by the way, who is Peter speaking to? Look at 2 Peter 1 and verse 1. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God and our, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's writing to believers. And he says in verse 12, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. I will, I will remember, I will remind you, even though you already know. And you've been established in the truth which is present in you. Verse 13, I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. That's what we're to do. We're to be reminded. And God reminds us. We're to be reminded of truth we know. And in Christ, by the way, we're not just hanging on for dear life. We're not just merely surviving. Jesus is strong. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, to a compass by which we navigate life. And that we are strangers and aliens here on earth on our way to heaven. And the book keeps us grounded. The Savior and the book keep us grounded. Jesus said in John 8, 32, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free to serve, free to love, free to obey, free to trust. So praying like this, praying like this really uh, reassures our wavering faith, but it also does something else. It dismantles functional atheism. It dismantles functional atheism, living as if God doesn't exist, saying we believe but acting like, he does, like we don't, thinking we have to make it happen, trying to be our own God, in charge, calling the shots, in the driver's seat. See, there is this great irony in the Christian life. It, it's, if, you, if we can appreciate it, it's, really, it's actually humorous but sad at the same time, all right? So you're going to laugh and you're going to cry, but that there's, there's genius in that as God gives us uh, these, these, these realities. There's this irony in the Christian life, and it's this, 
the people are trying so hard to be God. People are trying so hard to be God that they don't stop long enough to see that God became one of us so that we could stop trying to be like him, trying to be him. It's an irony that, that we are trying so hard to lead our own life and, in essence, live functional atheism that we don't, see, we don't stop long enough to see that God in Jesus Christ became one of us so that we could stop trying to be him. And the amazing thing about it is, once we come to know him, what does he do? He begins a work in our lives that starts from the moment of conversion to Christianity and goes all the way till we go to be with him or he comes again, where he is conforming us to the image of Christ. The very thing we could never do, God is is doing in, in the most appropriate way. People try so hard to be God, they don't see he became one of us, so we would stop trying to do his job. 1 Corinthians 15, who died for our sins according to the scriptures? Oh, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. There is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. John 1, that the, the, the word was with God and the word was God, and, and then John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's the only one that has that title. So we can stop trying to be our own God and rest in the one true God. See, this is in part why this is such a dangerous prayer to pray. It's also a very rewarding way to pray. If you pray this, you say you mean it. Like we sang a lot of songs today. We, we mean what we sing, right? Well, if you pray it, you're saying you mean it. And if you mean it, you support it. And if you support it, you're 100% on board, you give the thumbs up, you won't just live with it, but you'll fully support it. It's scary, huh? But it's also exciting, and it's also filled with expectancy. When, when someone's about to have a baby, they say, we're expecting. Well, well we're, expect, we're expecting God to do great things in us and through us for his glory. So what marks, as I close this, what marks the person that prays like this, how, how do they live? How are they identified? Well, first and foremost, there is a life of worship. There is a lifestyle of worship that we know who is really in control and then we acknowledge God as primary. Eugene Peterson put it this way, prayer is answering speech. The first word is God's word. Prayer is a human word and never the first word. Never the primary word. Never the initiating and shaping word simply because we are never first, never primary. You see, we are, we are responders, not initiators with God. We pray, uh, our Father who is in heaven. We pray as it is in heaven. It focuses us on greater realities. It focuses on, on greater realities than the pain that we experience here on earth. The prayer Prayer or asking is hard work. It's probably the hardest work you'll ever do as a Christian. Prayer is really hard work, but praise is the outflow of our hearts. Praise is heart work, the outflow that, that energizes and renews praying. So Jesus putting in um, the, this idea of praying and saying, now make sure you, you praise God's name, who he is, and, and acknowledge that he's in heaven, and acknowledge that you want what he wants, just like it's done in heaven. Well, that, that tells me we need to listen to Jesus and, and how he's instructing us to pray because it works perfectly. Praise energizes our praying. Praise energizes our acting, our asking. Praise is the response of a worshiper to God. See, what I see in the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer is, is definite preoccupation with God, a, a preoccupation with him. Worship that leads to a lesser fixation on other things and straightens priorities out. And then the other things fall in line in their proper places. The other thing it show, that, that is shown in the life of someone who prays like this is a, a, a definite growing uh, in wisdom, a growing depth in wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 1 and 2, it talks about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom and that, that God gives wisdom and discretion to those who seek it. Those who pray like this, they learn as Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Lord, let us number our days that, that we would get a heart of wisdom 
We would learn wisdom, that Jesus is the wisdom of God, and that God gives wisdom to those who seek him. The last thing that is a mark of someone who prays like this is that the, the, the distinguishing mark is a soul at rest in God. A soul that is at rest in God. John chapter 15 and verse 4, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. The branch can't bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me, remain in me, rest in me. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, part of that Jesus is saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will rest your soul. I don't know if you've ever driven in fog, but if you've ever driven in fog, you know how dangerous and disoriented it can be. Uh, I remember once driving a church bus full of people I cared about up the mountains at night going to a retreat. And fog set in, and there was almost zero visibility. We couldn't see. And we crept along at a snail's pace just so we could stay on the road. There was no way in the world I would have floored it at that point. First of all, in the old school uh, church school buses we were using, you couldn't floor it anyway. Not going to go anywhere. Um, but there's no way I would have not kept my eyes fixed on the dotted yellow line that was our, our guide up, up, the, up the hill. You know, uh, I'll tell you what, I wasn't resting, I was tense. I was stressed. Tension, not rest, was the, was the, uh, the present uh, atmosphere for me. And part of it was they were all evaluating my driving, so, you know, I'm, I was nervous. But you know what? Sometimes when we go through a hard time in life, we, we say, you know, I'm going through a fog. I'm just kind of going through, I don't know what God's doing. I, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what end is up here. I, I'm just going through a fog. And, and we know God is with us, but we can't make heads or tails of anything. And, and we're waiting for the fog to lift so, so we can get our bearings again and see clearly once again in a spiritual way. But when that happens and when, when we do get our bearings back, it's like waking up from a bad dream, Right? You're just like, wow, I'm glad I'm back to reality. But only sometimes, though, the fog is the reality. And you live in the fog. And it doesn't lift. And all you have is God to lean on. I'm reminded of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. God will protect the one that comes to him. And, and I, God loves it when we trust fully on him. God loves it when we rest solely in him. And I'll tell you, it is then that we can truly experience Jesus as our life, as Colossians 3, 4 says. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we'll be revealed with him in glory. That's when we know Jesus as our life, when we can't see the way to go. See, fixating on God clears up our spiritual vision. 